Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another uh, BP Movie Journal. This is the show we do. We talk about the stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Here's uh, what I think should happen. What? Uh, you're David. That's right. I'm David. You're Tyler. <laughs> yes. Oh, let's keep doing that. That's fun. Um, so we'll see. The uh, I think what you should do is in your intro, try to add one more word every time you do it. So that in the next like like six months from now, your intro is just really long and really like with a lot of unnecessary words, like some, maybe some qualifiers, some adjectives. I don't know. I feel like uh, that would be fun for me. Um, that reminds me of when I worked at a video, the video store I worked at in Chicago mm-hmm. during college college. That's my yeah. wife makes fun of my very Midwestern. I've, I've in so many ways that often. I in so like. many ways I've like worked with the mid, the like St. Louis accent, like out of my speech, mm-hmm. you know, I don't say like, you know, highway farty far, uh, or, yeah, know. that's good. Um, which is how, you know, my family talks a lot of mm-hmm. them. Um, but my wife always laughs when I say the word college, because I literally, college. I can't, I can't say it the way that non Midwestern people do to me. It might as well be spelled C A W L E G E college. C A W. See now that to me looks, it sounds more like college. Which is more Boston, yeah. I guess. Or a, or a very specific type of Chicago. Um, oh, okay. So the way you're no, saying I feel ca- like is C-A-H. Oh, okay. Yeah, college. college. Yeah, that's how I say it. Anyway, when I worked at the video store, speaking of long intros, speaking of long intros. Oh, uh, man. Um, <laughs> uh, it was called Nationwide Video, and we were required to say the name of the video store with, when we answered the phone, mm-hmm. which meant most people would just say Nationwide or Nationwide yeah. Video. And I to make my coworkers laughed, started saying hello and thank you for calling nationwide video home of the 99 cent Wednesdays. My name's David. How can I help you? <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> the, yeah. As opposed to just like nation, like they're lucky if they get wet, wide out. It's just one nation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, people didn't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would do when I got, when I became the manager of that store Watch out. and got my first cell phone, this was in 2003, a cellular phone. You're talking my first about. cellular phone okay. in 2003, which meant when someone called me, mm-hmm. I knew that they were calling from the store. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would answer nationwide video, no matter where it was, <laughs> it would really throw people off, <laughs> uh, which reminds me of what, uh, your outgoing voicemail used to be, which is one of my favorite yeah. things in history. It was this for, I think, I think a week and a half to two weeks and and I kept getting angry voicemails. <laughs> so yeah, some listeners may not know this. I think we've talked about it before. So here's, yes. a, here, here's what I do. Uh, I'm calling, doot, doot, doot. I'm calling Tyler doot, doot, doot. ring, ring, ring. No one's picking up ring. <clears throat> hey it's me uh just calling to check in see how everything's going um go ahead and just give, give me a call back whenever you get the chance thanks bye Beep. <laughs> yeah so that was my outgoing message i thought it was so hilarious and awesome. my mom got so angry at me for that and just i remember the i think the first message i got uh-huh. was my mom going uh <laughs> i don't know what that was, <laughs> I think I might have dialed something wrong, and it was very funny. 
So, but yeah, uh, but I couldn't keep that going. <laughs> That's too bad. Um, so maybe, I'll, you, maybe I'll do it again. Maybe I'll just embrace the, the inner scamp. <laughs> um, yeah, I have no idea what is said when my phone goes to voicemail now because no one calls. That's true. Yeah. If I get a call, it's usually a number I don't recognize and which means I don't answer it. Yeah. Now you'll sometimes call me and I will likely not be answering because okay. uh, I'm like, I don't want to talk to this guy. Yeah. Um, when was the last time? I don't remember calling you anytime recently. It's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while. But, um, but sometimes I'm calling you because you haven't been answering emails for a day and a half. Yeah. Oh, I feel like that's rubbing off on me and I've been bad at getting back to you lately. Yeah, I know. Now the sh- see, and you see how e- easygoing I am about it. <laughs> Although I guess I wasn't a moment ago. All right. Um, okay. Um, we got, we got stuff to get. Yeah. Through. What did you see? What did you see recently? So, okay. You know what? I'll uh, to put, to look at this in order appropriately enough. Um, I watched a four hour documentary on Netflix called never sleep again, which is about the entire, uh, nightmare on Elm street franchise. Now I watched this before the death of Wes Craven. Um, and, in watching it and and seeing you know the de- some of the decisions that he made for the first film and then uh, you have you ever seen Wes Craven's New Nightmare? No, I never have. Oh, it's marvelous, and I think you would like it a lot. Um, and just uh, it just gave me a, a, a renewed sense of what's so good about that series, but then also what Wes Craven uh, did. And so it's I mean they go movie by movie. They interview as many of the actors from the films as possible, uh, including front of the show, Whit Hertford, um, who played, I believe Freddie's son at one point. Huh. Um, and it's, uh, so it's really interesting. I like that. I, I feel like if you're a horror fan, you should watch it cause it's a nice in, it's about as in depth as you can get. And they talk about why some of the films work, why some of them don't, you know, uh, I think Rennie Harlan directed the fourth film. Oh. And so they interview him and you know, the, I'm always fascinated when, when certain certain directors that we have a certain uh, we have an idea of, like Rennie Harlan, uh-huh. you listen to them and they're actually very intelligent, very articulate, and his story is particularly interesting because he I don't remember where he's from originally, but he ju- he was living here, did not have a lot of, of possessions. I think he and this other guy were uh, living in like a one room apartment or maybe like a studio apartment and their, their electricity kept getting shut off. And for some, and so like they had nothing. And then Rennie Harlan just through sheer force of will, I guess managed to direct the fourth film, Uh like get, get, get assigned to that. And then the film did so well that within like two weeks, he got a call from Steven Spielberg and a couple other people. And then he got die hard too. Like it's insane. Yeah. And so like, that's the power that that franchise had monetarily. Wow. Like people were really paying attention to it. And I can't think of a lot of, I mean, obviously there are tons of franchises now, but when I think of like horror franchises and the idea of, uh, you know, bringing in a director, uh, who's new and fresh and can do something with it. I feel like, you know, aside from the alien series, which we talked about with our commentaries there, I feel like that's not a thing that happens very much. But Randy Harlan wasn't a name. Then. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I guess in this case it was you bring in new directors and the 
and the franchise makes them a name. I guess maybe that's that's the difference. And yeah. so now I'm trying to think of horror specific examples, and I can't. Like Friday the Thirteenth isn't that. Halloween isn't that. But I'm saying like more you know. recently. Like I couldn't even tell you who directed the later Saw movies or Paranormal Activity yeah. movies. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, but it's really interesting and very in depth. And and you know if you're if you're looking for a a good way to grieve uh, the loss of uh, Wes Craven, I'd say watch that because while you know he doesn't factor in uh, factor minute wise a lot into this giant four hour epic, um, he's instrumental in all of it, of course, and uh, and it gives you a respect for what he did and then what that franchise did for horror in general. So anyway, sorry, we can move on. Um, no, that's fine. Um, I don't know why you said sorry. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. Where 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 did you watch that? It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah. And it's, is it in parts or it's literally just four hours? Four hours long. That's awesome. Yeah. Like what was it? Who funded it? Like what was it made for? I don't, if I, if I had to guess and I don't know, I don't remember exactly what year it was made. I think maybe it was, it was made, um, as kind of just this retrospective right before what was, going to be the reboot with uh, Jackie Earl Haley. Oh, Um, so I think it was made for that. Like, Hey, let's look back and now we're going to take a step forward, which turned out to be a complete uh, disaster. But, um, so I think it was that, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't know who funded it. I don't know. Like, it seems like it should be, you know, like the, the alien anthology Blu-ray series has these really in depth, uh, making of, if you were to put all those together as one movie, it would maybe be four hours. Yeah, it would probably be about four hours. But even then, it's so obviously they, these were meant as special features for something. Right. Whereas this is is not that because it also talks about the impact that Freddy Krueger had on culture. The impact. Um, I love that. Like, yeah, they talk about the short-lived Nightmare on Elm Street uh, uh, TV show. It's really interesting. Like no, no expense was spared in this thing. I don't, uh, I that's just like an, like a group of people who are obsessive and nerdy or like, yeah. we are going to do this from, 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 from go to woe. We're going to do the whole thing and we're going to be exhaustive and we, uh, are just going to hope there's an audience for it. I think and, that's fantastic. And it's entirely possible. It's that called never sleep again. Never sleep again. It's entirely possible that new line funded it. If, I mean, if they didn't, they sure, granted access to to Bob Shea and and just the various people who who were a part of New Line at, at various times in the company's history so like so i feel like they probably if they didn't fund it then they worked heavily with right. New Line so right. i think that allowed them to do it but yeah it was it was really great okay um i saw a movie called Meet the Patels okay that is very good i want to say this if anyone from the publicity team from meet the patels is listening it's a terrible poster i was so braced for an awful movie okay because it sort it presents itself as like an indian american uh not native american indian american yeah uh indian american as opposed to american indian right indian american romantic comedy okay and there are some like i don't want to be offensive here but there are often there are a lot of there are a lot of shitty movies that are made where the interest isn't in making a good movie it's in making a movie in a recognizable and profitable subgenre and then marketing it specifically to a niche underserved minority audience 
you know what was the one you reviewed like right when we first started reviewing movies for the website you saw one that was the it was the, like the latino version of that right oh gosh oh shit do you know what it's called no i don't man that movie was terrible uh yeah and there's there's a lot of them and it's sort of like it's a, i mean it's a shame that those that those audiences are so underserved that you can get away with making shit movies and it'll make money. It'll make its money back because it's aimed at uh, people who will go to see it because they're so starved for, yeah. for, for entertainment. And but that's saying I, this was not, that. that's what I thought this was okay. going to be. It's not that at all. It's a documentary. Oh, okay. Uh, it's still actually kind of does have the beats of a, of a kind of romantic comedy. Although it's just about the male half of the romantic comedy, the, Anyway, I don't want to go too much into it. Basically, the premise is this guy, um, he's an, he's an Indian American actor. You've probably seen him in some stuff. His name is Ravi Patel. Um, and he, uh, lives in Los Angeles with his sister. Neither of them are married. Neither Mm -hmm. of them is married. Neither of them is married. Right. Um, uh, neither of them is married. (laughs) Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Um, at the time that the documentary starts, his sister starts filming it. They directed it together. Um, he has just ended, he broken up with his girlfriend of two years, who is a white American mm-hmm. uh, woman whom like two years. He never told his parents back in North Carolina. His He's first generation. His parents are from India. Yeah. He never told his parents about this relationship because she was white. Um, and shortly after they break up, they, he goes with his family on their annual trip uh, back to India to the, their village where they came from and where everyone is named Patel and, um, everyone is putting pressure on him. He's 29 years old. Like you gotta, you gotta get married. What are you going to do? You gotta get married. Um, and so he decides to undertake that. He's like, okay, I'm going to do this the Indian way, or at least the Indian American way, Yeah, which is now back in their, uh, village in their area and the surrounding villages, this was easily done by matchmakers setting up, you know, uh, meetings mostly between parents, but also between a boy and a girl, to, mm-hmm. you know, teenagers usually, um, where they talked for 10 minutes and then decided to get married because um, they were matched up. The American uh, way of solving the problem is that um, because they're so spread out, there aren't these like communities, these villages. Um, it's essentially an internet thing that's run through the parents where every eligible man or woman has essentially a resume, a thing they call biodata mm-hmm. that has their picture descriptions of themselves and what they like descriptions of their parents and where, where, where in India their parents are from and what jobs their parents have and what they're looking for and things like that. And these get traded around. And so this guy ends up going completely funded by his father going on like 15 dates all across, across the country. He like flies all over the place. Uh, and then he even attends a, because, okay, not all people with the last name Patel are related as you probably as a Smith, you probably know. That. Yeah. Yeah. I get um, it. in fact, Patel's tend to marry Patel's. That's uh, one thing you learned because it means they're from the same area. Yeah. And so they're pre-approved, I guess in that way. And so at one point he goes to a yearly thing. I, it didn't say where this, or maybe I missed where in the country this was, but it's a weekend long convention mm. called the, Patel matrimonial convention. And it's Patel's from all over the country who spend a weekend in a hotel playing like icebreaker, getting to know you games and trying to ma- make matches between young men and young women. And he, and like he goes, and he takes his sister with him so she can like shoot it and everything. And so it just, 
it it just uh it sounds, not, it it's so great. fast and it's made it's like really lively and his his parents are such characters yeah. that they're hilarious um and, and i'm not gonna i don't want to say where it ends up but he spends it the film covers roughly a year from like the december when he decides okay i'm gonna you know this thing didn't work out with this white woman that i couldn't bring myself yeah. you know he broke up with her because he couldn't like handle yeah that he couldn't tell his family about her um so i'm gonna so it spends a year from that decision to the next december and i won't say uh where it goes from there but uh it's called meet the patels um it's a lot of fun and, and, and very fascinating that that is something you know like i'm about to say something that that i i feel like i'm con- you're conditioned not to say as a white person um <laughs> but you don't you know, like indian people i don't care for them you know i just you know i get it i didn't know what i was going to say after that um but i love that as a dismissal for anything I, oh i get it <laughs> yeah culture tradition <laughs> I saw a fiddler on the roof. Um, I know it's not Indian, but it's tradition. Um, right. No, what I was going to say is that, um, what if you're like watching like last week when you rewatched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. like at minute seven of her screaming her head off and you're like, you're scared. I get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you're, th- you think your life is almost over. <laughs> Got it. Understood. <laughs> Yeah. move on yes. let's just can you give me the the bullet points um so uh no what i was gonna say is that uh, you know i'm fascinated at other cultures specifically filtered through like you said filtered through the american culture as well right you know um by a strange happenstance um my church is probably about 40 45 percent korean uh, uh-huh. and so, and so, and then Jen and I, we are part of the, the, the pre-marriage ministry. So we do like premarital counseling for, uh, these couples and a good number of them have been Korean. And we learned early on that like, okay, there is a very specific culture specifically in regards to parents uh-huh. that, that you and I have no grasp of. Uh, at all as far as expectations and that sort of thing, uh, uh, parental expectations on, on us. And, and I don't want to speak broadly and say, this is how it is. But after a couple, after two couples and feeling and realizing like, wow, their parents sound very, very similar. Uh, cause there's usually like one or two generations out. Okay. And, and so then we talked to some friends of ours from church uh, who are also part of that ministry and they are Korean. And they said, they said, Oh yeah, this is a big part of anybody, any Korean Americans life of a certain age. And they said like, you should probably speak to that. And I was so like, what, what specifically is, well, part? just the idea of like, you know, uh, you are like, yes, yes. It's fine that you go and start your own family with this new person, but don't forget who your real family is this little interloper. It's all well and good. Good for them. And also, and often and listeners, obviously this is a generality, right? Okay. I apologize. I'm sure there are multiple exceptions, but, um, but, and also, uh, you, you better be getting married to another Korean. Um, like there, there's that as well. And so, 
I'm fascinated by that because like, I don't think there's any, I mean, aside from like, in my case, like a, a, a religious culture, I feel like I don't have anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Like right. you're like your mom. I don't think she would like, as long as you know, you didn't date some troublemaker, you know, <laughs> who was dragging you down into a world of, uh, of, uh, you know, drug use, like, uh, right. like, uh, Courtney love or something. Right. Um, aside from that, I think your mom would not have cared who you married at all. Yeah. Correct? There was never any, any, I never got the impression that I had to marry someone who was right. You're uh, going to marry a Bax or right. <laughs> We're going to go over to Backspace. Like, yeah, no, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so that, it's just something that fascinates me. And this sounds like a, a really interesting way and an entertaining way to, to engage with, with another culture. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It comes so, out in a couple weeks. Meet the Patels. I had something else I was going to say. I forgot. I'm sorry. But no, we should move on anyway. Uh, I should apologize uh, for one thing. Uh, I'm, I'm very sleepy right now and I feel like it's coming through and uh, sort of some uh, ramblings. Well, you're doing fine. Thank you. We're, we're having a good time. Don't you fucking patron. Right <laughs> um, all right. Uh, uh, if I'm going in again, if I'm going in order, uh, here's a rewatch. Okay. And it's a pretty regular rewatch. I'll probably say this again in like six months. And that is Alan J. Pakula's all the president's men, which I can watch any time of the day, any day of the week, any week of the year, any year of my life. Um, I totally understand what you're saying. And yet I've only ever seen it once. But it's, it seems like it's, it is going to be so watchable. It is hypnotic to me. The sheer number of like, for example, phone conversations and just the number of like character actors who aren't recognizable. Yes. You have Ned Beatty. You have, uh, unfortunately, Stephen Collins, you have, you know, Jane Alexander, you have those, but then you also have just the, uh, just a number of like just working actors that you would never, that you might recognize, but whose names you wouldn't know just being like, they're there for one scene. Right. You might only hear their voice. Um, and well, it's just, I think part of what makes it watchable is that it's, you know, very well made, but it's also so much. It's so concerned with process that it's like, yeah. have you ever watched that show? I can't remember what it's called. It's, I think it's called how it's made or something. Oh sure. Yeah. And it's just, there's no host. There's just a narrator and yeah. there's shots. Some, sometimes they have people in them, but sometimes they're just machinery working and it's yeah. just like this step and then this step. And it's a nice soothing voice. And I could watch, I could watch that show for hours. And I think there is something similar yeah. with all the president's men in that it's, uh, it's so easy to follow from point A to point B and you see the thing moving along and coming together that, uh, it you use the word hypnotic. I feel like that's uh, a big part of it. It just pulls you right in and it creates a world. You know, we were talking a moment ago about, about cultures. Well, I think there's probably a journalistic subculture and, they do such a thorough job of recreating a news office and you know, there'll be seen, there'll be scenes of like the different editors of the newspaper. Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein are not in there and Watergate is barely mentioned. It's just lulling us into the culture of journalism and what is expected of them. And it's just, it, it, you know, Watergate is just one more of a bunch of other stories and of course the idea of that is that it will quickly become the story. Um, right. but that actually happens after the film is done. Um, like it's just, I can't listeners. If you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough. It's a, th it's a thriller and you already know the, you already know the outcome. Yeah. And yet you're still like on the edge of your seat because there's the, 
I think a lot of it has to do with the acting of Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford because they have to play these revelations as though I, I wrote a, I wrote a review of it and my, my title for the review was all the way to stands because there comes a moment when they realize that, Oh, some of the money from that went, went to a Watergate burglar, uh, was authorized by like the head of finance for the committee to reelect the president. And his last name is stands. So uh-huh. at one point they're like, it goes all the way to stands. And like, they have to, the actors need to sell that as though, this is so exciting. This to them is like the high point. They don't right. think this is going to result in the resignation of the president. <laughs> right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's how you still find the energy and how it still feels fresh. All these years later is because their performances, they cannot telegraph to us what we already know and what we know the actors know. It's yeah, I, it's a wonderful film. I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay. Moving on. I saw a new film. It's in, theaters i mean it's in limited release it'll be rolling out uh now um it's a brazilian film directed by a woman named anna moitel i think and it's called the second mother and it's quite good not perfect Mm -hmm. but quite good um it is the story of a woman uh from some part of brazil um uh presumably some smaller town Mm -hmm. uh, in brazil who works as a full-time live-in maid for an upper middle class uh, family in Sao Paulo. Uh, and she hasn't, she has a daughter that she hasn't seen in 10 years because mm-hmm. she's lived and she basically her, the father of the daughter, you know, uh, is not part of the picture. Basically the daughter was raised by, I want to say her sister. I, that's not important who it is, but she's been working for 10 years this with this family and sending money. She's been sending the money to raise her daughter. Mm-hmm. And now her daughter is out of, you know, I guess, uh, primary education or whatever, um, and ready to go into college. She wants to go to college in Sao Paulo. And so she comes again and not having seen her mother in 10 years, she comes and stays with her mother, which means she stays with this family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this girl has been, uh, raised and wants to go to college and wants, and is, you know, um, full of, aspirations and uh, of social mobility and stuff like that and, and assumptions that she is not part of a lower class. And so she moves in with this family and starts behaving more like one of the family than the maid who the it's it, it, like, this is where it's at its best is that it picks apart these very specific class distinctions that are, that are these these people think of this maid as one of their family in many ways, mm-hmm. but there are certain lines that are never crossed. There's still always this sure. knowledge. This is the help. This is someone of a lower class. And this girl has none of that. And so without meaning to starts just obliterating these lines yeah. and um, some members of the family are open to it. Some aren't. And so she's sort of knocking down barriers on the one hand, but also putting her mother's, livelihood at risk right at the other hand and it sort of just plays out over the two or three weeks that she stays there hmm. uh it's 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 really good and the main uh, now i forget her name but the woman who plays the maid is fantastic uh worth seeing the film just for her like incredibly warm uh and human and natural performance uh that said there are a couple of things where i feel like uh you can 
you can see the you can see the filmmaker angling for uh, a point. You know what I mean? Or yeah. to, for the message. Like there are some things where it's like, well, she's been with this family for ten years. She would know not to say that, or she would not feel that way by right. now. But these underlining, or she, sorry, the filmmakers, she, she's underlining things to make a point about the class distinctions that seem a little unnatural. It's sort of, and probably uh, unnecessary. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, um, the allegory that popped in my head and I haven't said this out loud yet, so I don't know if it works, but imagine, okay. Imagine a movie, and this is kind of true of a lot of movies is a Ouija board, right? Okay. And you and the director, have your uh, or the other you know filmmakers have your hand on the Ouija on okay. the thing. Now the way those work, you know it's not moving on its own, right? Like those things don't actually move on. <laughs> we're we're skeptical people, sure. Right? Yeah. So okay, you, so the you know the thing isn't moving on its own, but if done right, both parties can keep up the illusion that it is. Yeah. Right. Uh, I should say I've never actually but used one. But, but you but understand the. <clears throat> I'm fascinated by that. But like, yes, I understand. So if you can, you can keep up the illusion that it is moving on its own if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. But if someone starts pushing a little too hard, you can tell it breaks the illusion. And to me, that's how I felt in those moments when I'm watching this movie that is so good in the performances, especially this main one from the maid who I keep meaning to look up is so fantastic that I'm all, I'm almost forgetting I'm watching a movie. It's all, I almost feel like I'm there and it's a documentary and then something will happen and it'll just, it breaks the illusion. Um, but I don't want to sound like I'm, I'd still give the movie a B plus. It's a, yeah. it's really good. And again, uh, I'm going to look up this one's name. What, what was the name of it again? It's called the second mother and okay. it is in theaters in Los Angeles now. Um, and probably some other cities and it will be rolling out, uh, in the weeks to come, I imagine. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, Regina Case, or Casse, probably, okay. is the lead actress's name. She's fantastic. Okay. The second mother. All right. So, uh, speaking of, <clears throat> pardon me, movies that they have a message, and they push the message maybe a bit too hard. Okay. And then earlier you were talking about movies that feel like, okay, well, we need to appeal to a very specific demographic. Okay. So I saw... War Room. Oh, did you? I did. The and new... uh, you can you can hear an, in, an in-depth discussion of it that I have not yet recorded. This is from um, the makers of Courageous and Fireproof, right? Yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can hear my more than one lesson episode about it. This is not The War Room. It. No. The documentary. Right. No. <laughs> this is, that is not it. This is simply War Room. Um, I have to assume Alex Kendrick, the director, is uh, very aware of that documentary and didn't want... You know, he didn't want to. It's not that he didn't want to confuse people. He didn't want to take away from it. He's like, there's only one, the war room. It's the war. It's the war room. Um, So, uh, yeah, the companion film, by the way, uh, over at More Than One Lesson is uh, Ang Lee's uh, The Ice Storm. So, uh, So notably different films. What is the war room about? All right. So, uh, I guess I better get used to talking about it because I haven't recorded the episode yet and I'm going to do it right after okay. we're done recording tonight. Um, <clears throat> well, it's very long. So it's about uh, this this couple and it's 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 not unlike Fireproof. It's this couple that are, they're married, they, they have a, a child um, and the guy is, works for, in pharmaceutical sales and so he's, he's always on the road and he takes his wife for granted and just really is not that interested in his family. He's interested only in, in 
what he can get out of his marriage and what he can get out of his life and that sort of thing. So, uh, so this woman who is a realtor, she meets this, uh, this sage older woman who is a Christian and advises her and, and the two of them kind of have make this connection and the older woman finds out more about this younger woman's marriage and says, well, that is very similar to my marriage. My husband has, pa- has passed away, but, uh, you know, my, I, my husband was in the military and he was married to the military first and me second. And so, uh, so she basically talks about the power of the power of prayer and the war room being like this closet that she converted into the place where she goes to pray. And, uh, so it's about that. And then also putting certain, trying to change uh, certain attitudes towards your spouse. And a lot of people have, I'll say this, a lot of people have said like, Oh yeah, these wives got to change their attitudes towards their husbands. Like, yeah, they're abusive asshole husbands who obviously also need to change. All right, let's not make this a, a gender thing. It's basically about being selfless towards your spouse. Um, and don't get me wrong. I don't want to defend the war room, but some people just make war it. Room. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to defend war room. Um, but, uh, but these people are putting me in the position of having to do so. Uh, yeah, the movie's not good. Okay. Uh, it's very bad. Least favorite movie of the year so far. Oh. Um, now, just just okay. butting out um, Seventh Son, I believe. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, th- what, I'll, what I'll say is to its credit, but I also don't know if this is a cynical choice. Uh, predominantly black cast. And I think that's, I like the idea of it not merely because the, you know, the black community in general is horribly underserved, which is something, you know, we've, we've agreed on, but also I I like the idea of it because I think people have a very specific idea of what evangelical America looks like and it looks white, but in certain regions of the country, in fact, in a lot of regions of the country, like you will find like entire black churches that are just uh, that they're not the what one would say like the stereotypical black churches of the sixties. They're just, they, they're very similar in tone to these white evangelical churches. And so by just Hmm. having it be that, uh, I like that, that Alex Kendrick is, he's stepping outside of his own comfort zone because clearly he's just kind of told stories that have to do with him as a husband and father. He's stepping out of his comfort zone and telling a story about a, a culture that he's still familiar with, but a subculture that maybe he's less familiar with. So good for him for doing that. That's if I'm looking at it one way. Another way is, Hey, got to get that, uh, got to get that Tyler Perry audience. And the film was a big, I mean, literally like, uh, like, uh, Oh, Dire of a Mad Black Woman and stuff like that. Like there's always like a Christian, a black Christian thing going on with Tyler Perry movies. Oh yeah. I think in his movies, there's almost like, it doesn't even seem overt. It just seems like a baseline assumption. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, these are Christian characters and yeah. the audience probably is. And it's not, it doesn't even seem like it's trying to make a point. It's just assuming that about yeah, Both and it's parties. And that's an that's a fascinating assumption. Even even, you know, when you watch something like The Wire, it's assumed that a lot of these people or at least their relatives are going like in the in like the poorest horrible neighborhoods that they're still going to put on their nice clothes and they're still going to go to church on Sunday. Yeah. It's you know, we're we've been talking an odd theme throughout this this uh movie journal has been culture and cultures that 
yeah. that we're fascinated with. And I think that's one of them for me is black evangelical culture. Um, and so, so good. So good for him. If that's what he's sincerely trying to explore or at least capture, uh, bad for him, in my opinion, if he's just cynically trying to capture a certain audience. Um, but if I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, I'll just, I'll say like, yeah, he's trying to do something different and good for him. But yeah, the movie it's, it's the standard thing. I think it's a big step backwards from courageous. And I didn't think courageous was very good. Um, but in that, there were actual like action sequences that were pretty good, and, okay. and I remember thinking like, "Oh, hey, look who!" In between Fireproof and Courageous, look who watched some movies. <laughs> and then n- now it's a big step backwards. The writing is really, really bad. The acting is also really bad. There's some. There's a couple good performances here and there, but um, and these movies are all written and directed by Anna Kendrick, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> And her brother. <laughs> um, what, what is it? What is the Alex Kendrick is the director, right. and then he and his brother, I believe, Stephen, uh, write these okay. films. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to. You can go and listen to what I'm sure will be a long episode of More Than One Lesson if you want to hear more about it. It's obviously not good. I hate to put it that way, but of course, it's not good. They're never good, and it, <laughs> it bothers me so much. Did you? Um, I can't believe we haven't talked about it. Did you see Little Boy? No, I've heard about it and no, thank you. Yeah. It sounds crazy. For a bunch of reasons. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, but I did see a trailer for this movie captive, which people have, which listeners have been telling me about. Okay. It has Kate Mara huh? and David Oyelowo. It's a true story and people had been saying, and I've been seeing post posters for it and stuff. And, people have been saying like, Hey, it's a, you know, a Christian movie with like really with like genuinely good actors. And I thought like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian movie. I get it. It's probably a movie with like some Christian themes, uh-huh. but it's not a Christian film. I think it's a Christian film with okay. these two actors. I- I'm fascinated. I'm now fa- officially fascinated by it. Um, and I, I know that David, I know that David Oyelowo is, is a Christian an outspoken Christian. And so like maybe he was a force behind it. I'm not sure, but right. either way I'm, I'm actually, uh, fingers crossed this one could be good i don't know there's only uh, been one good one the uh, the movie journal where you talk about it indeed all right um the final film for me on on today's list uh is the new francois ozone film which i was very excited to see because i like his work it's called the new girlfriend it's not awful <laughs> okay but it is uh a bit of a letdown for people who are fans of his work it doesn't uh, I mean, I, I think of his best films as um, The Two That Leap to Mine Are Under the Sand and Swimming Pool. Did mm. you ever see Swimming Pool? I did see Swimming Pool. Good movie, right? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, and very intensely psychological. Mm. And I think his best films are. And this gets at that at some times. But then he has another mode that he works in where he's more of a melodramatist. Is that a word? Um, sure. In a way that's kind of self-aware, do you know what I mean? And like, uh, not to like a postmodern extent, um, but maybe a, a little bit heightened, a little bit theatrical, but I guess that's kind of what melodrama is. Um, and this is more that, but he's done good work as, as that. Um, he did make a musical at one point, hmm. <laughs> uh, called eight women, which is really good. Right. Um, this is the story of a, uh, a woman named Claire, I think, whose best friend since childhood uh, dies, gets ill and dies. They don't say uh, um, what from, but um, 
Claire is the godmother to Laura's, Laura's the deceased one, Laura's um, daughter, uh, Lucy. And um, she makes a promise to her friend to look after Lucy and to look after uh, David, who is uh, Laura's husband, mm-hmm. wid- widower at this point. Um, Claire has a husband of her own. It's not that sort of thing. Uh, one day she goes over to the house to check on Lucy and David and finds David taking care of Lucy, but in full, like dressed as a woman, mm-hmm. makeup and everything, just uh, dressed as a woman. And so he has this secret. Apparently Laura knew about it, but now he has this new confidant and, um, so the movie is about her becoming close to this person that she knew as David, but right. um, is more and more living her life as Virginia. Uh, so it's, that's an interesting story. Um, and it actually does, uh, on paper, do really interesting things with it. Again, it's not that bad. It's probably a C plus. I, okay. I guess that's not great, but it's not a failure. Um uh, and it does really interesting things in terms of like the gender slash sexual confusion that Claire undergoes mm-hmm. um, because she's like, I find myself getting really close to this person, but this person I think of as a man, am I sexually attracted to this person? And right. like, um, what does that make me? You see her sort of, uh, the movie never comments on it, but you see her like, wearing pants more often you see her Hmm. when she has sex with her husband being on top like it's sort of she sort of starts to take on these like masculine roles at first because uh, i think it's supposed to highlight illustrate her confusion as to how she's supposed to feel about this person virginia um because yeah she's wondering you know she's dealing with whether or not she's attracted and then she's like well if this person is a replacement for my friend laura was i attracted to Laura? Was there something more than just a friendship? And so it really like, it really blurs the line between close friendship and romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, calls into question assumptions we make about how we feel on people based on we, what we, um, assign to what, what we mentally attribute to their gender. Yeah. Uh, and I'm making it sound really good. And when it's I know, doing it's, the way you're describing, it sounds very interesting. Yeah. When I, when it's doing these things, right. Um, it is very good, but sometimes in a lot of cases, I think it's a little bit, uh, overly hand wringing about, uh, the, the, the mental stress that she's going, going through, you mm-hmm. know, there's a certain part. It's like, at a certain point it's like, okay, she's, uh, a young woman in a, in a, in the Western in Western world country in France, like this stuff can't be this new to her. You know, she's not right, like, right. if this were like a Douglas Sirk movie, which it sometimes comes close to sure. And it were dealing with cross-dressing her, her initial reaction of shock and a little bit of disgust would be a little more understandable because it's so out of the realm of what she's used to. But, uh, I, I did find myself occasionally turned off by the character because it's like, do you really have to make her feel negatively about this first to show her growth or, or feel this negatively? Like, uh, it, I, I, I feel like it's, um, it contrives her, it sets her back from where I, I feel that she would be as a character um, in terms of her opinions toward these things in order to show more growth. And I feel like that's a little bit of a contrivance. Well, it could be having not seen the film, of course, maybe it's this idea that, you know, 
a person thinks themselves nice and progressive now, until and, they are faced with something. And, and then, I wish it, I okay. wish it went into that. Okay. But, uh, but it, it doesn't. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it still a, sounds it's, interesting. it's a bit of a disappointment, but it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And what's that one called again? It's called the new girlfriend, the new girlfriend. All right. Um, you okay, got one so more movie. I do. I saw last night at the Arrow. I saw the Studio Ghibli film Grave of the Fireflies. I've never seen it, partially because I'm a skeert. <laughs> oh, you're growing into that beard of yours. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, you know, it's. I think the film had been built up for me quite a bit, and it is very good at times. Genuinely great. Is it? As I recently heard it described, the saddest animated film ever made? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. Um, I didn't well up, and I'm somebody who's somewhat prone to that. Um, okay. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just about this, uh, this brother taking care of his, his uh, young sister in Japan uh, on the, during the tail end of the war when the U S is just firebombing all these cities. Um, and his mother dies and, and his dad is, uh, a soldier. And so he's, he's off. And so they're to get, they're just alone and they have to try to figure out what they're going to do. So they go and live with an aunt who is, who does not care for them. Um, but like, we'll like still James have the giant peach. It's exactly like that, yes. And she does actually get again. It's not that sad when she gets rolled over by a giant peach. Um, and uh, no, like she still will house them and she'll still feed them. But at the same time, she also has her own husband and her own children to think of. And so that that's when the son. Uh, that's when the 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 brother and his sister they decide to leave because they're tired of they're tired of living where they're not wanted. And then they go find this little cave where they set up a little, uh, little house for themselves. And then he has to go and get food and, and all that. And then things, uh, go poorly. Um, okay. it's, it is very sad. Um, and, and the thing is, that's about all I can say. Hmm. And I feel terrible saying that. Like it's, it's very, it, it's very impactful. It got the emotion out of me that it clearly wanted. Um, I had a strong sense of, of who the main character was. He's deeply flawed. The whole reason things go badly. Like there's, there's somebody who says, Hey, seriously, you should go back and live with your aunt because yeah, I know it sucks to be with someone who doesn't want you around, but you can't take care of yourself Mm. and you can't take care of your sister. So you should go do that. And then he, but he doesn't. And if he had, things would have gone better. Mm-hmm. And so that is a flaw. That's a flaw in the character. And so I like that it's willing to explore that, uh, that pri- the pride. And, uh, but for the most part, I saw it. I re- it registered as good. It registered as sad. Mm-hmm. I left, did not think about it for the rest of the night. Weird. I am talking about it now. And then I don't think I'm going to talk about it maybe the rest of my life. Okay. It's not that it's bad. It's just that there, there's almost this feeling of I don't know. It, I'll say this. It was made in, in the, the late 80s, I believe. Okay. Now that's at this point 
you know, 20, 88, I think, 27 years ago. It, I think it has been... I think people our age have come to realize... I think we, we maybe are just brought up knowing that World War II, yes, we were fighting Nazis and thus we were on the side of right and that uh, we did not attack Japan unprovoked. But once we were provoked... We did some pretty bad stuff to Japan. I think you and I are of a generation that understands that. Yeah. Were I an adult in 1988, and maybe I was raised just sort of thinking like World War II, that's the good war. Right. You know, maybe watching this would make me realize, yeah, you know what? War is hell and nobody gets out. No one gets out clean, you know, and here's a clear idea of the victims. I do think that maybe it's a, you know, I can still relate to these characters as characters, but I feel like the impact that the film was meant to have was a, a, go back to that word, a cultural impact. And I think that impact has been made to the point that now the film had less impact on me as far as its necessity. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's not the film's fault. Um, and I can still, and so that's why I think I'm still able to recognize that it's very good and very effective, but it's not this earth shattering groundbreaking thing for me that maybe it was for people at the time. So there you go. I feel bad speaking. I, no. I, I don't have anything negative to say about it. I'm right. not saying anything negative about it. I just feel like I'm not fawning all over it like some people do. So, which I guess qualifies as a negative these days. But you got to see a movie with the arrow. I like I got, seeing yeah, movies there. That's uh, yeah. I think I need to more often. They're, that, oh, that they're showing now. They're showing Nashville there, and I will not be able oh. to make it. That neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Love the place to visit. Wouldn't want to live there. I could <laughs> see that. Well, <laughs> if I lived there, then maybe I could actually find some fucking parking. <laughs> you know. Really, I've never had problems. Oh. This time I this time I lucked out because someone was leaving uh, just as I as I got there. But no, the last few times I've gone there, uh, mm-hmm. it's been it's been tough. No, thank you. Oh, um, I like it there. Uh, all right, on to TV. Do you have anything other uh, than the thing that we both have? I recently. Well, I'll mention this here. I'll mention the actual episode as well. So my other podcast, yes, worth playing for that I host with my wife Jenny. It has it has posted. It has it has dropped. Uh, so episode one is now available in which we talk about our history with the show, what we like about the show, that sort of thing that is available at battleship pretension.com. Uh, and so as we were talking about it, I realized that there are still a couple of seasons of survivor that I hadn't watched. So I recently went back and watched season five, which is considered one of the worst seasons because it's so full of unlikable people. Oh, so I went and watched it and they're not that unlikable. Don't get me wrong. There's a couple uh-huh. that are difficult, but, uh, but by and large, I thought it was a really good season. And, and people talked about how the winner of it was one of the best winners. And in watching it, I can see where they're coming from. And, uh, I don't know. It's, I, I don't, uh, and I, I, I went to a, uh, like a Facebook survivor page, like a fan page, mostly to promote the podcast. Uh-huh. But, um, I went there and I just left this thing saying, Hey, I don't know what, what's with all the negativity towards season five. And I think it's just one of those things that people have been thinking of it as a negative season for so long, but the, the show's gotten so much worse right. as far as certain types of characters, uh, since then that I think it looks pretty tame by comparison. Hmm. So I watched season five of survivor okay. and then we, you and I watched the same thing. 
Okay. Um, well, well, then you... I will real quick talk about a second thing, which is oh, okay. uh, I finished watching Show Me a Hero. Okay. Um, and it's it's really it's really very good. Okay. It has one, and I haven't seen other people talk about this, so I don't know if it's just me and my wife because we both had the exact same reaction. Okay. So it has a sort of like uh, it's six hours, six episodes. Right. The beginning of the first episode starts, you know in media res as it were, you know, in the middle of things, um, and something ominous is happening and then okay. it cuts back, you know, a number of years. And then I think halfway through, like at the end of, of the third episode, he, Paul, I guess, and David Simon go back to that, like tease it again, like mm-hmm. here's something. And so the sixth episode ends with that. And it is, yeah, what happens is pretty devastating, but there's a major element of it that I'm like, wait, what? Like, hmm what were you teasing? Like you never really, I don't think you really answered what this part of it was. Like I'm trying, I, we don't do spoilers on the movie journals usually. Yeah. Um, and I would like to stick to that. So, but that it's hard for me to talk about. So if you watched show me a hero and you know what I'm referring to, email me David at battleship com Cause I want to talk about what exactly that was because I don't get it. Was it a plane crash? Uh, no, it wasn't a plane they, crash. They were just, you know, they showed a stuffed animal in no, a swimming pool yeah, and all that. It wasn't that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I love Breaking Bad, but the, yeah, you, uh, every time I'm reminded of that stupid plane crash in season two, I do get a little annoyed. Yeah. It's the, it's the low point of the series for that, me. That, that is um, the point. That, that is often the thing I point to when I say, like, I don't love Breaking Bad. They're like, why not? It's like, the first two seasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Season three, it gets notably better. Yeah. Um, but show me a hero overall, uh, was really good. Fantastic performance from Oscar Isaac and from the whole rest of the, of the cast. I mean, to get back to the culture thing we're talking about, um, David Simon is, uh, as much as I hate praising the guy, (laughs) he's, uh, really good about taking a story that's about a white, like the lead character is white, even mm-hmm. though he's played by Guatemalan American Oscar Isaac. Yeah. Um, he's a Polish, uh, a Polish descent. Um, and you know, he's the quote unquote hero of the title, although that really might have quotes around it as, you know, um, and he, you know, is the guy who fought for this public housing, low income housing, you know, uh, and David Simon as a writer is really good at, because there's a number of stories that are about the people who live in the public housing Mm -hmm. and it's not through the lens of like how they were helped or how this affected. It's not like when it deals with them, it doesn't treat it it, it, in a very smart way, like sort of forgets for a while that Nick was is the main character. Mm -hmm. It's about their, their lives separate from all that and how it was affected by that, but not, it, it 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 doesn't all revolve around the main white character while still being a part of the story. Mm-hmm. That's really well done, um, and it's a really, it really I think uh, enriches the the whole the whole show to have um, points of view uh, from all over the the spectrum. Well, and that could uh, you know say what we will about him. That could also be a Paul Haggis thing because though I'm not necessarily a fan of crash. One of the things right. that I think it does well is juggle an ensemble. Um, that's true. And so that, that could also come from him as well. That's true. Um, yeah, we were talking about show me hero at, uh, I had a little barbecue last weekend mm-hmm. and we were talking about 
show me here on someone said uh, maybe just getting away from scientology is all that paul haggis needed <laughs> maybe um Anyway, uh, and then, yeah, so let's talk about the show that's uh, on our minds. Uh, the end of, you have something else to say? Dan? Well, I wanted to throw it to you because, you know, I watched one episode and that was the end for me. Right. You watched the entire Francis Dollarhide story in like, uh, yeah. in like a week. Yeah, right? I, I had watched the, the first one earlier but uh okay. yeah I, I had gotten behind as a this summer has just been crazy and i'm behind on pretty much all television unless it's something that i watch with my wife mm-hmm. um so, so we have like a weekly appointment or whatever which makes it easier to catch up stay like so i'm up on project runway no mm-hmm. there's no worry about that i am uh current on project runway but hannibal i had gotten behind and so in order to talk about it on hey watch this last week i watched five episodes in 48 hours. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it was Hannibal is what the show we're talking about. I said it, but uh, I never announced, um, the end, but I really really just, because we don't have that long. I just, I do just want to talk more about the finale because I was so, you know, watching the, like I watched the last three all in a row. And when the third episode started and there's like the teaser before, and then like the credits, the opening titles come up and it's yeah. that, you know, atonal music with the blood forming Hannibal's face. And I start, I started to get very sad thinking, well, thinking back to two plus years ago when you and I saw the first time we saw that opening titles, uh, uh, title sequence at, at WonderCon when they showed the first two episodes. Yeah. And that guy was an asshole about it. Like, yeah. Oh man. I would love it, to ask that guy now. Yeah. What he thinks. That, I, I had that exact same thought, which was, was yeah, this is a don't big know the deal. Yeah. That, yeah. That like re- this, this show like resonates with people in a way that very few shows do. It, it, it is destined to go down for me like it's threatening other things that are in my top five series of hmm. all time right now. It is, it is that good and that yeah. nearly flawless to me. Yeah. Um, there is one it, thing that has been bothering me about it lately, but I'll, I'll tell you about it. In, uh, later off mic? Uh, well, I'll do it on mic cause it's oh, okay. fun. Okay. Um, so when that opening title sequence came up, I was sad because I was, you know, getting nostalgic about how, you know, I felt like I was, because I got to see the show a, fairly, a few weeks early mm-hmm. there, and so I was very excited and tweeting about it. Aaron, Aaron Abrams retweeted me. Yeah, cool. um, uh, and then um, uh, I was also thinking, I couldn't help but think of another one of my possible top five of all time, Deadwood, mm-hmm. which also ended unceremoniously after three seasons. Right. And as much as some fans will try to convince you that it works, it really is an open-ended, it really is oh, sure. obvious that there are lots of loose threads in the, that yeah. David Milch was not intending to end the series there. Right. I'm really happy to report that I feel like the way that season three of Hannibal ends on the one hand, I can see how this wasn't meant as a conclusion, right? But it also ends in such a way that if I want to, and I do want to, I can close the lid. Do you know oh, what I mean? Absolutely. I, I can, I like, it's really interesting how you and I talk about, uh, it's interesting when you and I talk in general. Well, no question about that. Jermaine, to this conversation, there's a thing you and I talk about, about how creator intent, uh, is maybe interesting as trivia, Mm -hmm. but the way you feel about a film is the way you feel about a film. And that's more true to you than what was intended. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Like if I believe that, uh, uh, um, 
Harrison Ford isn't, why am I forgetting his name? It isn't a, a, a rubber. Deckard. Deckard. I kept wanting to say Riddick. So I know it's a different guy. Uh, Deckard isn't, if I think he isn't a replicant, then he right. isn't a replicant as far as I'm concerned. Right. And that's my truth. And it's interesting how, like, I know common sense tells me that the way that I interpret the ending of Hannibal, again, we're invo- avoiding spoilers. Mm. The way that I interpret the end of Hannibal is clearly not what was intended when it was written mm-hmm. because it wouldn't make sense because it wasn't written as a series finale. Oh boy. But it, it allows me to interpret it in a oh, way sure. that I'm going to insist on for myself, at least. I mean, I'm not going to insist that other people interpret it that way. That would be, uh, what would that be? Chauvinistic. I don't know what that would be. Um, when you, in- when you insist that other people yeah, be fascist, fa- fascist sounds okay. pretty good. Um, uh, chauvinistic is when you just say, I insist that women interpret but this chauvinistic the way I is a term that is associated with sexism, mm-hmm. but it's not like at its root. That's not what I mean. That's why people say male chauvinist. Oh, okay. I think All it right. has more to do with insisting on, I guess a fascist point of view. Like, okay. I'm sure like I could be a, I don't know, a, I guess I could be like a hockey chauvinist and say that hockey is the only good sport and all other sports uh, are suck and should follow hockey's lead. Wouldn't you know, that make me a chauvinist? You know, uh, I guess so. Although I do think that, uh, I think at this point there is a cultural definition that has replaced whatever the definition actually was. But it's always male chauvinist. I've only ever heard like, yes, but I always, and this might just be me. I feel like anytime someone says male chauvinist, I, and actually now that I think about it, I have heard other people express why qualify it with male? Obviously we're only talking about this one thing because that's oh. usually how it is used, but you know what? Sorry, let's just say fascist and move on. Okay. It would be fascist of me to insist that other people, uh, interpret it this way, but I am very happy and don't feel like I'm being disingenuous with myself to interpret it with the closed ending that I interpret it with. Right. Uh, even with the post credits, uh, little, uh, tag which i didn't see you didn't see it no <laughs> i didn't know there was one uh it's awesome i will i think i was watching it on hulu the credits went and then it minimized and was like on to oh. the next show but because the credits unlike and standard episode of hannibal mm-hmm. the credits aren't over black the credits are over picture so i stayed right i, I kept watching i should have thought of that um uh damn like it 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 felt the, mi- Not, the minute we're done here, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to watch it. Okay. Uh, even with that, I, cause I, I have a way of tying that into, which if you listen to, if you listen to, Hey, watch this. Cause Paul and I do do spoilers. So yeah. you'll hear me talk about what I'm saying in full detail. If you want to listen to the last, last week's episode of, Hey, watch this. Um, and, uh, so I feel like I feel very happy about the way this ended. I was, I had gotten myself to a place of being almost depressed about it mm-hmm. and I feel very happy and almost to the point where it's like you don't need to like I know he's talking about making a movie to wrap things up but it's like I would kind of be okay if he didn't as much as like you know a few days ago it's all I wanted in the world was for him to be able to make a movie to wrap things up and now yeah. I feel like you don't you don't need it uh, yeah, how do you it's, feel? it's I mean having not seen the tag and I was just trying to imagine what that was and here's what I where I arrived uh, which is you see uh, well, no you spoilers. See, yeah, you see Jennifer Lawrence like sitting and drinking in a bar and then you see Jack Crawford walk up and say Agent Starling, would you like to join the <laughs> Buffalo Bill initiative? Uh, 
<laughs> that's I assume that's what it would that have would, to be. Right? That would actually be awesome. So, uh, <laughs> damn it. She'd make a good yeah, Chloe really Starling, would. right? She really would. Um, I don't think I'm the first person to say that, but uh, I had the thought the other day that like, oh, I think, but I might have heard it elsewhere. So anyway. But the um, show has done so, done so much like, like uh, changing people from women or from men into women and from mm-hmm. white into, into other races. We could have like a, a Latino Clarice, right? That'd be interesting. Or Latina, I guess, is the way to say that. Yes, come on, be be sensitive. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of like just with the back with her specific backstory. I think it could still work um, with all their with uh, different uh, you know a different race or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's one good thing about the show is that it it traffics so heavily in symbolism um, that that final image could be seen and I'm speaking as someone who didn't see the tag. So, um, it could be seen as purely symbolic. It could be seen as undeniably final. Um, and so, yeah, I I do think unlike Deadwood, which doesn't do that, you know, and just has, I'll say this, the way Deadwood ends. Yes, obviously they're going to, they wanted there to be a season four, but if, if they had carried Deadwood through to its end, I feel like the ending would feel a lot like that ending, you know, which is just, uh, not everything is done. Right. There's always going to be more stuff to do. Okay. Life in Deadwood will continue. And Al says something simple yet profound in the midst of absolute horror. Um, so you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this, and so like, whereas this, I feel like it, I def, I definitely feel like, well, this is def, this is the end of a chapter of Hannibal. You know, and whatever they were going to do next was going to be, would have had to, I think, have been so notably different as far as far as character dynamic that there needed to be a definite sense of finality here. That yeah, um, that's true because it is. I mean, it's always been like this series has always been based on the novel Red Dragon, and they've borrowed stuff from Silence of the Lambs and from Hannibal. Yeah. Um, and maybe from Hannibal Rising. I'm not familiar with Hannibal Rising, so I don't know if they did yeah, or not. Um, they've borrowed so, a lot of stuff, but it kind of makes sense for the series to end with the conclusion of the Red Dragon story. Yeah. Uh, and it's also great that they did it in a way that is very satisfying and very different. Yeah. You know, they do things, uh, again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but there's something that happens in like the second or third to last episode that it's like, oh, that's the end of the red dragon yeah. in the, in the book. And I probably in, uh, they changed the end in Manhunter. I don't, I never mm-hmm. saw the red, uh, red dragon, red Riders movie. So I don't know if that's true to the book, but, uh, I was like, it was exciting to me, you know, whenever they would move and it would happen repeatedly, you know, they did yeah. the flaming wheelchair thing in season two. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so it was very exciting to me that they ended it in a way that was, uh, true to the story, but also true to the unique, uh, version of the story yeah. that they had created and also just feels like for a show that for a series, a season rather that started off, you know, ponderous and abstract and slow in a way that I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. but it got, it really revved up and has a final episode that feels like a final episode. Cause it is yeah. there's action in it. And it also, I think wisely, um, at least in the second half of the episode 
sidelines pretty much every character except for Will and Grant or Will and Hannibal. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think that's a good choice. Like now it doesn't leave loose threads, but it's like, you know, we've liked Jack Crawford. We've liked, uh, Alana. Um, and we do see a little bit of Alana near the end, but, um, it's sort of like at the halfway point, it's like, that's not who this is about anymore. <laughs> right. Yes. It's, you know, these other characters, they've certainly, they have been heavily impacted by this relationship, but it's about this relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll mention what, uh, has, has come to bother me uh-huh. about Hannibal to the point that I feel like there should almost be an SNL sketch about it. And that is the Hannibal cadence by which, and I don't mean the character. I mean the whole show. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Actually, I think Paul and I talked about it. Did you? Cause we were trying to imagine, or I, I was trying to imagine someone who'd never seen the show before turning on their TV and seeing one of the quote unquote therapy sessions between Will and Bedelia. Those are the ones <laughs> like that would seem like the most pretentious, almost parody. Yeah. Crap in the world. If you had, if you weren't already rooted in it, yeah. but it's so, but by that point in the series, it's so like, no, this is, this is completely of a piece with this world. I was toying with the idea of, uh, in honor of Hannibal ending, I was toying with the idea of, uh, <laughs> of recording the intro to the next episode in the Hannibal cadence. <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to do that instead. Okay. Of, but it, this is how it would be. It would be like, hello and welcome aboard the battleship pretension. I am Tyler Smith. And then you would say, and I am David Bax. Well, yeah, especially if I'm supposed to be Bedelia yeah, Mario because she's absolutely. very... And yeah. welcome aboard. And just everything <laughs> is so but, um, careful. Hugh Dancy talked about at the Comic-Con panel. You were there. Yeah. This is for the listeners. Um, watching episodes and being like, huh, I thought I knew what I was talking about when we filmed that. I'm not sure that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah. It's just such a... like, And after a while... It, it, it's what makes it, it's what makes um, Aaron Abrams and Scott Thompson so welcome. Yeah, which is they have a different cadence. They have a human cadence. Yeah. Whereas, like even Jack Crawford doesn't have that. You yeah. Know? Have you watched? Um, and then we'll wrap up. Um, but have you watched any of the um, Scott Thompson hosted postmortem? Um, NBC does these things online where uh, I did it's like but after I, every episode, the third season ones weren't as good as the second season. Ones. I watched the second season ones because yeah. those were funny. Mm-hmm. This is more like, I feel like they did in like, I don't know, 45 minutes of interviews and then just cut it up and po- oh, posted yeah. one after every episode. It wasn't as specific. Um, but they, yeah, the second season post postmortem ones, those are fun. And, but I, what I like about it is that, Sometimes when I'm watching them, I forget that Scott Thompson is on the show because he like talk, seems to talk to the actors or the crew members as if he's an outside party interviewing about this show that he's not a part of. Well, I have no, I have no uh, doubt that there's part of Scott Thompson that's like, how the hell did I get involved in this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. You yeah. know. Yeah. All right, but um, he's a welcome addition to it. Let's uh, let's stop.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.